Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 4, along with Colton Nuanas. I am Ryan Tutel. Thanks for being here with us once again as we continue through the head coaches of the University of Montana men's basketball team, the successes, the stories, and the sometimes winding roads that they have been on to create a great program at the University of Montana and then beyond. And Coulter, the subject of Episode 4, Blaine Taylor, one of our absolute all-time favorites, and we're not alone in that. Coach Taylor, one of the most gregarious, fun, funniest guys that you could ever talk to, and a guy who's had his own ups and downs, but also has had a remarkable career as a head coach from 1991 through 1998 at the University of Montana. Went on to Stanford to be on Mike Montgomery's staff for several years before taking over as the head coach at Old Dominion, where he was for 11 seasons the head coach at Old Dominion. But a guy that, Coulter, I know you've spent a lot of time talking to, being with, and you can't help but like Blaine Taylor any any and every time you get a chance to talk to him. Well, no doubt, and he... He's Missoula through and through as a Missoula native, a Missoula Hellgate alum, a guy who played for Judd Heathcote and then went on to coach for the Montana Grizzlies. His Missoula roots run deep, certainly. And he's the guy that introduced Grizz basketball to me. I mean, Blaine Taylor's cage camp in the 90s was must attend for youths in Missoula. You wanted to go just to get that copper and gold ball, let alone to get some engagement with Blaine. But I remember, you know, you go to college camps across the country. And the head coach is always there, and he's always engaging with some of the guys, but usually he's engaging with the guys that are 17 years old that might come play for him soon. Blaine Taylor's engaging with everybody, and I think that just shows just the type of guy that he really is. I know he was one of the most popular coaches in terms of uh, his time at the University of Montana, and a guy that's still beloved around these parts, both on a personal and professional level, and uh, good for him now to carry on his career, multiple different stops, and he's remade himself several different times. Now he's head assistant at UC Irvine on Russ Turner's staff. They had a tremendous season last year. They won 30 games, arguably the best college basketball team in the state of California a year ago. So Blaine Taylor has continued to reinvent himself and continue to have success throughout his college basketball coaching career. You and I grew up in this town. The cage camps were an absolute annual event. I still don't know. Can you help me? Cage? What is the cage part of the cage Yeah, camps? I definitely thought I was going to be playing basketball in a cage when I first went. I was, I was for it. <laughs> I was be a lot it. like being at home for you. Yeah, was, as, well, right. I mean, at that moment in my life, all I was doing was practicing professional wrestling moves on my brother anyway. So right. I thought, well, cage match, cage camp, let's go. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. So it's, a, it's a mystery it's as a mystery. to where that came. We, that's something we should have dug a little deeper yeah, we on. We probably should have asked guys. Blaine one, once upon a time. Grizz Greats, the coaching tree, is brought to you by Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate. Mike Nugent, Gary Bryan, and Mike Bryan are all big supporters of the University of Montana men's basketball team and Grizz Athletics as a whole. Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate prides itself on providing the community of Western Montana with full-time real estate professionals who are here for you whenever you need them. Their reputation as the state's most knowledgeable and available real estate group has helped build unmatched trust in the Garden City and around the Treasure State. Gary Bryan of Berkshire Hathaway Montana Properties is a fierce supporter of Montana men's basketball and a proud supporter of Montana Grizzlies athletics across the board. Gary has been selling commercial and residential real estate in Missoula for more than 25 years. He has historical knowledge that matters, and when you pair that with his current marketing strategies, high-end photography, and video, Gary and his team understand that an experience counts. Give Gary Bryan and the Bryan team a call today. 406-880-4141.
Mike Nugent, Mike Bryan, and Gary Bryan all understand the importance of history when it comes to the University of Montana, particularly when it comes to the men's basketball program. And so Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate is proud to present to you Grizz Greats, the coaching tree. At Berkshire Hathaway, they understand that buying and selling are huge decisions, and they always have your best interests in mind. So give them a call, Berkshire Hathaway, your local real estate experts. Well, without any further ado, let's get into it. One of our favorite conversations. We certainly appreciate him doing it. Please enjoy episode four of the Grizz Greats Coaching Tree Podcast with Blaine Taylor. We continue in our Grizz Greats Coaching Tree Podcast series, this time with the man who was the head coach at the University of Montana from 1991 through 1998, Blaine Taylor. Coach Taylor, thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. How are you? I'm wonderful. I uh, have a new lease on life. I'm you know, one of the few guys on this list that's still coaching and having a ball doing it. And I really appreciate getting the chance to be invited to reminisced about you know time in Montana and at the university so thank you very much well let's start there then last year you guys got a chance to come back to the University of Montana you are now at UC Irvine and you were the head coach of Montana uh, through most of the 1990s and so then to come back I know you've been here before but last year a great game between UC Irvine and Montana I know there was a special time as well remembering the life of Devon Anderson so what did you think of just your time back in Missoula what was that experience like for you to be in Dahlberg on the opposing sidelines Oh, it's such a trip down memory lane, and in so many ways, I'm not even sure where to begin the entanglements I have. You know, I went to Hawthorne grade school, so much like you, Ryan, you know, as a kid, you know, you run down the highway, and, you know, I was at the old Adams Fieldhouse before it was Dahlberg Arena when the court went the other direction, and it had a dirt floor. It had rodeos in it. So I went in there, and there wasn't a handful of people watching the games, but I watched the Grizzlies play. They had a freshman team at the time. And and so I looked at the list of guys that we're talking about here, and the comparisons, you know, obviously come to mind. And one of the things that I looked at was, you know, I was basically born and raised right there. So when I come back from Missoula, it's multifaceted. You know, my 92-year-old mom came to the game and sat right behind the bench, and we're playing the Grizzlies, and that was a weird Weird feeling for my family. I have seven kids in my family. I was the youngest boy, and, you know, they all went to Missoula schools, Hellgate, Sentinel, whatnot. And so that's the first thing that rushes through. And then, you know, I, I, of course, played at the university. Some of the other coaches didn't play there. So when I look at how you just take the court or walk into the arena or what the locker rooms look like or, you know, where the urinals are, I mean, everything to me – has that an additional memory having played there and, and, you know, some of the guys on our list did, some didn't. And then, you know, having the, the ability to be the head coach there, you know, one of the things that uh, Judd Heathcote said early on when I became the head coach, he said, Blaine, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but every guy that has followed me has done better than the last. And I'm like, okay, no stress there, Judd. <laughs> so you know, when, you, when, you, when you come back to Missoula, you're, you're proud that you were able to stand in there. I always said that Montana was like New York. If you could you know, be in the head basketball coach there, if you could make it there, you could make it anywhere. And I think all the guys have kind of proven that, that have moved on. So I couldn't help but remember my years there as the head coach. But I was an assistant for five years also before I became the head coach. So all of a sudden, I chronicle five years with Stu Moreland, too, with Mike Montgomery as an assistant. So you have all these things that are just kind of gushing together. I don't know if you guys know this, but I was the last kid 
that Judd Heathcote signed at the University of Montana before he left. And if you remember those times, Montana State, when I visited there, they told me I'd start as a freshman at Montana. I had an uphill battle. And I ended up being Mike Montgomery's first starting point guard of his career in my sophomore season. Jim Brandenburg had the two years in between. I redshirted one year with an injury. So, you know, you've got all these pictures on the wall that you're walking down and you're seeing the the years go by, but also the decades go by. And then there was uh, after I left. And I remember sitting out at the airport. I was 40 years old. When I was hired, the joke was that they were going to have to take me out of there in a casket. That was in the paper. And I sat out at the airport with tears running down my cheeks. I was born and bred, raised Montanan with the resilience and fight that, you know, is bred in you. And I was going to sprout my wings and go off into the world. And, you know, I went to Stanford and rejoined Mike Montgomery. I didn't have to leave. I wasn't pushed out. It was just a career choice. And at the time, I had four young kids and a budding career. So I went to Stanford as an assistant for three years. So then going out east, I lost connection with Montana. I lost connection with my family a little bit. My father passed away in the years. He's buried up in Kalispell, facing Glacier National Park. I used to have a cabin at Lake Blaine. It was Lake Blaine before I was ever born. But uh, I used to have a cabin up there, and he rests uh, looking right up at Glacier National Park. But when I was out east, I was out there for 15 years, you kind of disconnected a little bit. Now, you know, Larry Kostoviak was an assistant for me. Travis DeCure was an assistant for me. I brought both of them out to Virginia when I was at Old Dominion University as the head coach. And then I walked down the hall and didn't hear they become head coaches at Montana. So Travis reconnected me and kind of brought me back. He started bringing me back to golf tournaments. I was working for NBC television at the time, doing broadcasts for them, Comcast and the American Sports Network. I came back to Montana, working for the American Sports Network, and did a Montana-Weber State game, I don't know, five, six years ago. And I chronicled this same podcast you're working on they flashed up a bunch of pictures of all these guys, and I just kind of talked through them in about two minutes, three minutes, and it was just a blur of just things like I'm talking right now. So you asked me what I was thinking. You know, I walk into the arena, and I, you know, I walk out of the locker room. Our team's taking the court, and I've got, you know, you to think I was either getting married or a funeral. I mean, there was a million people there saying hi and how you've been and good to see you and all that kind of stuff. And so Missoula has a special place in my heart, but. I have so much history entangled there. And then we go in and we play Montana, and they just throttle us. They just throttle us. And we turn around after that and go down to Boise and beat Idaho. This is right before Christmas. Now, then last year, they come back to our place, and we turn the tables on them and, and, and finish the game on a, like a 19-3 to run to beat them. And, and they were back-to-back champions, and we end up winning 31 games. And, and we did what everybody's trying to do. As a mid-major, go do the you know upset in the NCAA tournament, beat Kansas State, the Big 12 champs, and you know had Oregon down in the second half where they nipped us in the round of 16. So, you know, all this stuff just you know I I know that I I kind of went here and there and everywhere, but that's what my mind does when I get off the plane in Missoula. Now we landed in Missoula, the Anteaters from UC Irvine, and I walk out. And, you know, there's beach bus lines and all the same drivers and all the same guys, and we're laughing and giggling. And (laughs) then we head straight to the depot restaurant, and everybody on our team had prime rib and a mud pie. 
And I walk in there and people are running up to me and my, the players and coaches are going, it's like you never left here. And I said, well, that speaks more for Montana than me. It's the people here that make it special. Coulter, I don't know when we're going to stop talking about online businesses as if they're distinct from business in general because they just aren't. Every business, everything that's going on is now online. And being secure, critical to the success of your business, in the state of Montana, nobody better than Blackfoot Communications to ensure that you're encrypted, secure, confident that you're going to be online, up and running, and impervious to cyber attacks. The assaults that can come at you from every different angle, literally of the globe, are actually startling. So whether it's a personal business, an LLC, a corporation, family business, whatever you got, I'm sure, like you said, you have an online presence. If you don't, you're falling way behind, so that's probably something you should take care of. But as soon as you do, get Blackfoot to help protect yourself and your business and everybody involved with it. In today's always-on world, your business demands a simpler approach to network security. That is for sure. And at Blackfoot Communications, they deliver state-of-the-art security solutions from the perimeter to endpoint devices and remote data backup for businesses across Montana. Ensure your company network is online all the time. For more information, visit goblackfoot.com business. And thanks to Blackfoot for bringing us Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast series. Well, Blaine, thanks for joining us. That was great. Uh, we're all done. We've wrapped. We, I think we, I think we did That's it all. That's a wrap. Yeah. <laughs> no. Hey, well, when I worked for NBC, they called me One Take Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> well, Coach, I want to go back to your playing days. I mean, when you played, you, you know, you go to Hellgate and you play there, and you mentioned on the JV team, your redshirt team with Coach Brandenburg, and then for Mike Montgomery as well, but. Before you were a coach, as a player, what do you remember about those times and those guys? Let me back up. As a youth in Missoula, you know, I played in Little Grizzly football and played for the Stockman Packers, and we won the championship, and I played for the Plumbers Association. We went undefeated and won the Little League title. And Babe Ruth, I was one of the All-Stars that committed in the regionals. You know, I was on the Little League State All-Stars. So I did all the other sports. Loved football. A lot of people thought I might have had a college football future, but basketball was, was where I went. The career that I had at Hellgate, Wayne Tinkle's son broke my scoring record at Hellgate that had held for 38 years. And I still give Wayne crap. If he had taken a tray with him to Oregon State when he left, I'd still have the record. But, I know. You know. He left him there. <laughs> so, yeah. But I still remind Trey that we didn't have three-pointers when I played. So anyway, you know, the high school thing, a lot of kids from Missoula and from the state of Montana were representing the university during those years. Basketball was strong in the state, a little bit stronger than it is now, at least in producing Division One players. And a lot of them were going to Montana. And so my years there, Judd recruited me, but then left for Michigan State. The going joke between me and Judd over the years, because I stayed very close to him, I attended his funeral in Spokane a couple years ago. And I said, you're just no judge of talent. He says, what do you mean? I said, you'd rather coach Magic Johnson than me? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, Judd, Judd you know, used that at many banquets I was at with him. He would single me out and disparage me. But we had a lot of fun together over the years. But then Jim Brandenburg, you know, if you think of all the coaches that went on after leaving Montana, like I said, if you like New York, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. So, 
you know, all of a sudden Judd goes to Michigan State, wins the national championship. Jim Brandenburg goes to Wyoming and puts them in the Sweet 16 uh, and then goes to San Diego State. You know, Mike Montgomery goes to Stanford and Cal and the Warriors. Stu Morrill wins 600 games, Colorado State, Utah State. I go to Old Dominion and leave. There's the winningest coach in the history of the school. You know, you've got Larry, who was an assistant for me. Uh, you know, he's back at Utah uh, after being at Montana. Tinks had maybe the longest tenure that I can remember before he went to Oregon State. And then, of course, Travis now. So, you know, my playing days, the game is so different now than when I played. What Judd did, what Mike did then, what I did when I was the head coach at Montana. So I was right-handed, and every play we had went to the left side of the floor. <laughs> I, I mean, I couldn't wipe my butt or brush my teeth with my left hand. <laughs> and so, you know, it was a, it was an odd thing to learn how to run the high-low offense that was architect by Judd Heathcote and a guy by the name of Marv Harshman, legendary coach of Washington. And then Brandenburg ran it, Mike ran it, Stu ran it. I started to depart from it, but still today... Here at Irvine, Russ Turner is part of this family tree, believe it or not. He worked for Mike Montgomery at Stanford and with the Warriors and is still very close to Mike Montgomery and, you know, friends with Travis and, and uh, Wayne and Larry and, and all those guys, kind of a, you know, kind of cousin of the family tree. But the playing, you know, I was a good player, not a great player. I was, you know, more with my head. You know, I, I developed good skills and when I left, I was one or two on the uh, career list in free throw shooting. I always said, if you take the defense away, I was pretty good. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, uh, so, you know, I was an efficient player as a high school player. I was the MVP of the state and so kind of led itself into. And back then you had the Montana-Wyoming All-Star Series. I played in the very first one of those where we played in Wyoming and in Billings in the Metro. And I remember they were going to fly me on a private plane from Billings after the series. We were down there for 10 days and played Wyoming and, you know, played in Wyoming, played in Billington. And the coaches were there all proud. They had this private plane. They're going to fly me back to Missoula. And Mike Larson, who owns the Stockman Bar, and a couple of my buddies were there and some old beat-up Camaro with smoke blowing out of it and their four bald tires. And I said, no, nope, I'll go back with my buddies. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> anyway, uh you know, I, I had a ball there as a player. The thing I remember about as a player is the zoo was in, you know, the, the record crowds that we had during my playing days. Maybe not the best teams in the history of the school, but some of the best crowds in the history of the school during my playing days. If you look at the late 70s, fire marshal was on the, the dole, man. We, we had more people there than was even close to legal jammed in there some nights. And uh, when I was the head coach, some years later, we sold out on a weeknight at times. And so there was really a time before they reconfigured the arena, before they moved the students. It was as a player, you came out of the tunnel, the students were already there. Uh, it was already packed. The place was electric. We used to play the, the Hellgate Sentinel game in Dahlberg Arena, and we would play in front of 6,000 people. There was no big sky at the time. And so there was only two big games, and they had German Shepherds out front stopping all the fights. It was really something. That, so there was just kind of a different time. So, you know, those are some of my memories. Tell us about what the recruiting pitch from Judd Heathcote was like. <laughs> if I don't kill you, you'll become a good player. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, Judd, as, 
edgy as he was, was as, 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 uh, he was a curious guy. You just to hear him talk, you just there was a certain reverence with what he said and and the way he said it and and how thoughtful and and uh, how it, it it kind of sunk into you. And I was a real good student. I, I you know I had uh, about three six GPA out of Hellgate, and so you know they they had me visit all the law schools everywhere that I visited. And Montana had a really good law school. Since that time, I ended up getting my master's in athletic administration and, 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 and went in, in another direction in coaching. But, uh, you know, I was well-rounded. Uh, I sang with the Chevaliers, a touring group, when I was at Hellgate. And, I mean, Judd came and watched me sing and was, you know, kind of pissed when he walked over and saw that they had me wearing these high heel shoes, made me look about 6'5 instead of 6'2. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, anyway, he had a method of making you believe that there was something great going to happen. And I had gone to games when they redid the arena. They had a tartan floor and Judd gets so mad. He'd pull, he'd pull in his socks and pull his foot right through his sock and he'd throw his coat. And to me, I, I love the passion that he had. And I think you see it in Robin Selvig during his years. I think you see it in Travis. You see that the, the passion that people that have been in charge or have participated in Grizzly athletics, the, the real the ones you really had, you don't give you a spark when you're around when you look at them. They're the ones that have that little extra gene, that gift of passion. And uh, Judd had that. Interesting career arc for you when you were a player because, like you said, you signed with Judd Heathcote, but then he goes to Michigan State. You played JV when Jim Brandenburg was the head coach, but then he goes to Wyoming. So then you played for Mike Montgomery. So when you were going through that, were you ever upset about these coaches leaving? I look back at it. I think I had the comfort of, being at the school I wanted to be in the program I wanted to be, I trusted the people. They they all were internal elevations. They weren't new people coming from the outside. And I have sat in this transfer world that we live in now, these kids coming and going. The first thing that goes wrong, everybody's, you know, off to the transfer portal. And I get asked about it and I go, you know, I had three coaches in four years, basically in three years. And I didn't even think anything about it that much. I mean, you know, Judd left, but Brandy had recruited me, and Mike was his assistant. And when Brandy left, I had my work cut out for me to prove myself to Mike, but he had been the assistant. So I probably should have reacted more than I did, but I didn't. How did you decide that you wanted to go into coaching? I mean, you talked about, you know, maybe thinking about law and whatever, but when did you know that, hey, I think I might like to try my hand at being a coach and see if I can get on as an assistant? Well, these are two very real stories. You know, being the student I was and, you know, maybe watching too much much TV, Perry Mason, whatever, I was hooked with the law, but probably more of the romantic, what it meant to be a lawyer. And I uh, wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And, and there was two conversations that I had. One, my dad worked at the pulp mill. I was born in Butte, actually, and then moved to Missoula when I was very young. We had a large family. And my dad helped build the smoke jumping plant. Uh, out by the airport. He was, he was a gifted welder. They took him out of high school early, gave him his degree early, and he went to the shipyards in Northern California. And as soon as he was 18, he was in the war in the Pacific out of Pearl Harbor on a baby flat top, took a, took a torpedo that he welded back together in the middle of the Pacific. So uh, he was on the USS Corregidor. So anyway, gifted welder, but worked his whole life at the mill to support a family of seven. So when it came time to go to law school, his only advice was do what you want to do when you jump out of bed and you have a passion for it. Do what you enjoy. He says, 
I've been a good worker all my life, but I haven't had that. And that really was powerful with me. The other conversation I had was a former uh, University of Montana player by the name of Mark Nord, older brother of Chris Nord, the tennis coach there. Chris, Chris and I are very good friends. And Mark might not like me telling this story, but Mark graduated from law school. So I'm visiting with Mark about going to law school. And this is after I've graduated. I'm at a pivotal time in decision-making. And he says, well, Blaine, if you go into coaching, you're going to deal with, you know, probably the top 10% of the kids, you know, around. You're going to be dealing with some of the best kids that are the most driven and, you know, some of the best students and all that kind of stuff. If you go to law, you're dealing with the bottom 10% of society. He says, I spend all my time at the jail. I spend all my time in court. He says, I don't spend time with uh, people that are that are uplifting. And I was like, whoa, I didn't thought of it that way. Now, this was a pretty, you know, I mean, there's a lot of good lawyers. I mean, during my life, uh, from coast to coast, you know, my best friends, the guys I've hung out with, spent time with, have been in the law field, have been, you know, the this and that and the other thing in the law field and, and they've been my friends but those two conversations are what I remember kind of shifting me now you're obviously a product of your environment I was so blessed I had no intentions of being a college coach I went to get a master's in athletic administration I got an undergraduate degree in broad field which means I could have I was really a versatile teacher in Montana, it was a curriculum, so you could go to the smaller schools and fit in about wherever they needed you. And so I was going to be a high school teacher, eventually maybe become an AD, maybe become a principal one day. I'm, I'm close to a master's in a, uh, education administration also that I didn't need to finish once I got on my career track. But anyway, that was my plan. But I was around Mike Montgomery and Stu Morrill, Robin Selvig. I was around these guys, and it just became the thing to do just to, to stay with the track they had me on. I was, I had other jobs. I became the head coach at Loyola Sacred Heart in Missoula. I had other jobs around the state I could have taken. And Mike and Stu told me to stay close. So I went 10 blocks down the road and, and coached for a few years. And when Mike McGurney went to Stanford, Stu Moore brought me back as a full-time assistant. So, the, you know, I was, it was a result of influences, but, you know, just kind of being lucky too. Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast brought to us by our friends at Stockman's Bar. And Coulter, Mike Larson, second generation owner of the bar, he and his brother, and they've been doing it for a long time, decades and decades, and certainly one of the favorite watering holes of Montana fans and friends uh, for a long, long time continues to be to this day. And I know that Mike and Donnie Larson will definitely love this specific episode because these guys grew up with Blaine Taylor. That's right. They're really good friends with Blaine. And I know that that's really part of their strong allegiance to the University of Montana men's basketball team. But Stockman's Bar has been a go-to stop for men's basketball coaches throughout this entire coaching tree for more than 45, 50 years. And it still is. And it should be one of your favorite stops as well. Go check it out. $3 draft beers. Round the clock. Anytime Stockman's Bar is open. There is no happy hour. There is no special. It's a $3 beer no matter what. And by the way, that's all the beers. That's... If you want to get down on some domestics, that's great. If you want to get some micros, rock and roll, it's uh, one fee, and it's easily payable, three bucks. You're not going to find a cheaper beer anywhere in town, so go down to Stockman's Bar, get yourself an ice-cold draft beer. Stockman's Bar, proud supporters of University of Montana men's basketball program for more than 50 years. You're an assistant for Stu Morrill for quite a while, about five years, and then you take over the head coaching position at the University of Montana in 1991. When you took over as the head coach, what was that like being a guy who, 
is from Mizzou. I mean, you're talking about from childhood on up in this place, and all of a sudden this team is your team. That had to be a cool professional and really a cool personal experience, I would think. Well, you have to go back, if I could point out, in 1991, we won the regular season and we run the tournament in Missoula to a sold-out audience, national audience. When we stormed the court, the tears and the joy, I still I had people from all over the country go, that was probably the most impactful March Madness scene that they saw that year. But what that was, was 17 years it had been since Montana had done that. 17 years since Judd Heathcote, had, in 1976, had beat Utah State and played in the NC2As. Now, that's a lot of good basketball in between. And I, myself, played in three conference championship games, lost one in overtime. And so, you know, that, that trail of heartbreak, you don't know good till you had bad. And that was – so then Stu Morrow goes to Colorado State, and I become the head coach, and I inherit this team that I had helped recruit, that I had helped coach. But I remember winning the championship in 92, and, and I think you can point out maybe three or four groups of guys that may be as good as any time in the history of the school. And that 91-92 group, it was, was very, very special. Lots of league MVPs, lots of first-team all-leaguers, all that kind of stuff sprinkled in there. So in 92, we win the tournament again, and it was the first back-to-back. And right now, if we could do back-to-back here where I'm at, it would be the fourth school that I would have gone back-to-back. So I'm, I'm hoping that might can happen while I'm still coaching. But did it at Old Dominion, did it at uh, Stanford, and did it at Montana. But anyway, we won it back-to-back. I walk up to Stu. The first thing I did was walk up to my office, and I called Stu, who was down at Colorado State. And he'd had about a 500 season. And I told him, you know, you're the first guy I wanted to thank. Because I wouldn't have been the head coach at Montana. I wouldn't have been back at Montana. I wouldn't have been sitting in the chair I was in if it wasn't for him. And because uh, he had gone through a really hard year and he didn't get a chance to be with us on the journey we were on. And that's just the realities of coaching. You know, it's kind of here today, gone tomorrow. So that's kind of what those years were. We all kind of compare each other on this list. I consider myself a really good friend with everybody on that list. But I'm right in the middle of this list. So I have guys that are a little older than me. You know, Judd did pass away. But, you know, those are my friends. A lot of the guys on the other part of the list I coached or had as assistants. So these comparisons, when I left Montana, Judd was talking to me. I said, well, Judd, I survived. I left with the best winning percentage in the history of the school, and I'd been part of more championships than any coach at that time. But I said, Judd, the next guys that follow me at some point are going to pass me up. And there's been some really good guys come since. And Travis, I don't know if he's eclipsed the winning percentage record. I know he's on the way to winning more championships. Wayne won a bunch of championships. I was a part of four one-way, shape, or form. As a head coach, I had two NCAA appearances, three assistant and head. So, you know, those guys are tracking some of those kinds of accomplishments. And, and I don't walk around, you know, counting that stuff up as much as others. But, you know, you've got a lot of respect one guy to another, and there's always a little bit of who did what. And we had a roast a couple of years ago that Travis had us all back for. Oh, my gosh, the tape ran out. It was so funny, and it was so long. Like they ran out of, I mean, I don't know, they ran out of gigabytes, whatever they did. But uh, <laughs> that was something. And there was there was some pretty biting, cutting, funny stuff that happened on people on what they did do and what they didn't do. So it was uh, it was good stuff amongst a bunch of, we used to call it the brotherhood. 
you've had a front row seat to watch some of the greatest players in the history of the University of Montana men's basketball program, including one who we just got off the phone with, Larry Kristoviak, who's also going to be a part of this podcast series. But one guy who somewhat gets forgotten is Derek Pope. So take us back to that time. What do you remember about Derek Pope as a player? What sort of influence did he have on the guys that came after him? You know, great question, because when I was the head coach, a lot of the guys would come back in the summer and play in the evenings. And so Larry would be back, and there would be some other NBA guys. So you'd walk in there, and there'd be, you know, half a dozen guys that were, you know, playing professionally abroad or in the NBA. And Derek would come back. Now, Derek, you know, ended up having three boys. They all spoke French, and, and I was teammates with Derek. And he was so good. And, and, and Larry would have respected him as much as anybody. But if you would have walked into the gym, you would have thought he's the guy that has played in the NBA for 10 years, not the guy that ended up going to Europe and playing for 20 years. He was really something. One of the other guys that I played with when I first got there was Michael Ray Richard, mm-hmm. Richardson. I mean, he was the fourth pick in the first round my freshman year. I mean, I look up in the stands, and it was Willis Reed from the New York Knicks, and it was the guy from the Boston Celtics, and it was it was unbelievable the people that followed Montana basketball that year because of Michael Ray Richardson. Over the years, obviously, Larry was a great player. Tinks was a great player. But that group of players that we had in 91-92, Kevin Kearney, whose dad played for the Kansas City Chiefs when they won the Super Bowl, was the MVP of the league in 91, and Delvon Anderson was the MVP of the league in 1992. Delvon had very, you know, just sad story that he died at such a young age. I went to his funeral. Me and Travis were both there. Travis did a wonderful job of speaking. You know, Roger Fasting from Montana, uh, Darren England was the, you know, career shot block leader in the history of the big sky at, at the time that last I looked. So, you know, there was some guys like that. Gary Kane from Butte, Jeremy Lake from Lambert is a doctor over in Washington. There's some guys. I mean, Travis was on that with that bunch, and Travis ended up being the assist leader in the history of the school. So there was a lot of guys in that 91-92 bunch. You know, I have to say that in Crisco's and Tink's years there, I respected the names. I saw on TV some, but I can't really compare how good some of those guys were compared to Eric Hayes and Ken McKenzie and and then some of the guys that I coached. Devon Anderson, you mentioned him. We had you on two tell Nuanas after he passed away. And it was a shocker. I know that it really hit Travis Takir hard. Coach Takir has always talked with so much reverence about Devon Anderson, the competitor. And he always tells his players, compete with desperation, just like Devon Anderson did. What do you remember about Delvon as a player and what sort of impact did he have on the University of Montana program? There was a legendary coach at San Francisco City Junior College. His name was Brad Dugan. He drove a Harley, a, wore a leather jacket about down to his knees. I mean, he looked like the meanest guy. I mean, he was the streets of San Francisco. And so he was the legendary coach at San Francisco City. So I walked into Dugan. Dugan scared me. I mean, I walked in there acting like I was a tough guy from Butte somewhere. You know, my dad's a hard rock miner or something. I was trying to act like I was, had some edge. <laughs> he says, Blaine, Delvon Anderson is the toughest kid I've ever coached. I was like, wow. And so he proved that to be true. Delvon had this the heart of a lion and, and was as nice and soft-spoken a kid as you'd ever want to be around. But I talked about Judd Heathcote and his passion earlier. He had that in him. And it wasn't with a lot of words said. It was just more by actions and I mean, I remember one time coming into a huddle. I think I might have told you this story years ago. We were at Idaho State in a close game, and 
And and I walk over and his finger's pointing up the side of his hand. The trainer comes running over and Delvon, you know, towards the end of the game, he ain't coming out. He grabs his finger and just jacks it back into joint and stares back at me like, what are we going to do now? And I'm, <laughs> I'm about ready to puke. <laughs> but, well, I, I guess we ought to go win the game, boys. <laughs> yeah, that might so, get you going a little bit. Yeah, yeah. He was that. He was just that kind of guy. And, and you know, I think one of the things that happens in Montana is the player development, the weight room. I know they're doing a lot of facilities upgrades right now. I know that the Washington brothers, the Washington family, the fundraising, Travis has been – Travis learned a lot about fundraising when he wasn't at Montana. All the rest of us at Montana elevated from within and didn't have the worldly experiences. Travis was out east with me. He you know, was able to draw from those experiences with a cow. Um, and so when he went to Montana, the fundraising piece, he's been very aggressive and it's showing in some of the things that are happening in regards to the university and with the, the basketball program. Coach, we got to ask you about Travis because obviously it came full circle for him. He played for you and now he's the head coach here and has been as successful as anyone in his time as a head coach. But what do you remember about him as a player and how did he even get on your radar as a transfer from Chaminade? Okay, I was sitting by the pool in Southern California early in the morning, which was my habit in the summer recruiting because you had long days recruiting. And I would, you know, go out in the morning and get my list of players and a cup of coffee and, and sit there by the pool. And Ed Peppel walked out. He was the coach at Mercer Island High School. And, what are you looking for, Blaine? You know, Ed just got done working out. And I'm sitting there in the sun. And I said, well, we're looking for a point guard. He goes, oh, I got one that's transferring back from, and I'm in Southern California. He said, I got one transferring back from Chaminade. And he gave me the name. And I said, you know, I saw him play in Long Beach at Izzy Washington's event. But there was about six guys on his team that were all the same size running around. You couldn't tell anybody from anybody. And he says, yeah, he was amongst those guys. And he had a heck of a year. So anyway, I go up to my hotel room. I'm supposed to go out to Pomona and all over Southern California recruiting that day. I said, hey, man, I, what do you think about me flying up to Seattle to see this guy? He says, well, go ahead. So I go to the airport, jump on a plane. I fly up to Seattle. And I go to a summer league in Bellevue. I walk in there, and I said, which kid am I looking at here? And about the time they pointed out who he was, he was on a breakaway. And he bounced the ball on the floor and tried the 360 and dunk it. Missed it badly. <laughs> and I went, I went, and I was an assistant at the time, and I go, who will kill this guy? <laughs> I mean, Stu was a big guy. He didn't need no guard shenanigans. Just throw, throw the ball to the big guys and get out of the way. You know. So anyway, I got to know him, and he had some choices, and so did we. But everything came together, and I got close to Travis through the recruitment. As it turns out, Stu was the head coach when he was recruited there, but he came there red-shirted. Stu left and ended up having his playing years under me. So I, I don't know if it was a transition assistant to head coach closeness, but we really bonded. I had four daughters. Never had any sons, and I've always kind of joked that Travis was the son I never had. I always kept an eye on Travis, and so when I went out east, Travis was a high school coach. I'd see him when I was out recruiting, when I was at Stanford. He was a junior college coach. But, you know, a lot of guys go there and, and kind of, that's what they do, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's what I originally planned on doing. So I brought him all the way to Virginia to a really good job. Basically, replaced Larry Kristoviak. I'd lost my Montana guy. Larry had gone to the Boise Stampeders, 
And so I brought Travis in to replace Larry. So I had a guy that, you know, knew the high-low offense, knew me, knew Montana, kind of could laugh a little bit about the right stuff. So anyway, he came out there and was with me for five years, and we got the program going, and we enjoyed championship moments, and he did a really nice In fact, the player that he helped me recruit at Old Dominion is going into the Hall of Fame on the 25th of this month. It was a kid by the name of Gerald Lee that Travis helped me recruit out of Finland. So, you know, we had good years there. And then when Mike Montgomery left the Warriors, he called me and says, you know, I'm going to take this Cal job. He says, I don't know who to hire. I've been out of college athletics for a while. And I says, I got a guy for you. If you stay in the West, you take the Cal job. At the time, he was thinking about Indiana also. I says, I got some other guys maybe for you at Indiana. But the guy, obviously, for Cal would have been Travis. So they interviewed in San Antonio. And Mike liked Travis, but, you know, he kept saying, you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? I said, no, nah, don't worry, Mike. He's ready. He's the right guy, and he's had the right training. And so he did a heck of a job for Mike at Cal and then, of course, you know, back up to Montana. And when Travis took the job at Montana, it just seems like the shadow keeps getting longer. But Travis was ready and has more than lived up to it. Coulter, I don't know when we're going to stop talking about online businesses as if they're distinct from business in general because they just aren't. Every business, everything that's going on is now online. And being secure, critical to the success of your business in the state of Montana, nobody better than Blackfoot Communications to ensure that you're encrypted, secure, confident that you're going to be online, up and running, and impervious to cyber attacks. The assaults that can come at you from every different angle, literally of the globe, are actually startling. So whether it's a personal business, an LLC, a corporation, family business, whatever you got, I'm sure, like you said, you have an online presence. If you don't, you're falling way behind, so that's probably something you should take care of. But as soon as you do, get Blackfoot to help protect yourself and your business and everybody involved with it. In today's always-on world, your business demands a simpler approach to network security, that is for sure. And at Blackfoot Communications, they deliver state-of-the-art security solutions from the perimeter to endpoint devices and remote data backup for businesses across Montana. Ensure your company network is online all the time. For more information, visit goblackfoot.com business. And thanks to Blackfoot for bringing us Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast series. After his time at Montana, Mike Montgomery had so much success at Stanford, Cal, Golden State Warriors. How would you describe his coaching style, and what sort of influence did it have on you? You know, when I look at the Montana thing, I think Mike, it's hard to say understated, guy who's in the Hall of Fame, guy who's been an NBA coach, guy who's all-time winning guy at Stanford. But I think in the Montana tree, he's a little understated in that as good a job as he did coaching, they never won the league. And I was right. playing for him at the time, so I was part of that frustration. But Mike was just so steady and so good. And, and I think it has as much influence over that group as anybody. Judd gets a, a lot of acclaim, national championship, and he was such a funny guy. And they had so much of a presence. But Mike, you know, you think about his effect on Stu Morrill, on me, on Crisco, on Tinks. Uh, and then Travis as an assistant, not as a player. So, you know, I was looking at this list, and I was kind of thinking about, well, who who played at Montana? Who had other guys as assistants? Like, you know, um, I had Holst, Larry, and Travis as assistants. Stu had more, more guys as assistants than anybody, you know. Monty had me twice. 
I was looking at the list, and I was like, well, there's only four of us still coaching, and I'm kind of up that list, so I'm pretty blessed to still be coaching. But you start looking at some of that stuff, Bonnie's intertwined. You know, he's affected one guy that affected another, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. But, you know, I can't understate, you know, you might call Judd Heathcote the godfather of Montana basketball, but really that's kind of because he came first. I would say that Mike probably has affected more of the guys one-on-one than anybody. You know, Coach, you talked about that point in 1998 where you kind of decided, you know what, I want to expand my horizons a little bit. And you being from Missoula and doing it in Missoula for so long, you decide to go with Mike Montgomery to Stanford. I know it was a tough decision, but what was the conversation like with Coach Montgomery that ultimately you said, yeah, you know, I got to make this hard decision. I'm going to do this. I, uh, talked to Bill Moose, who had been the athletic director of Montana. I talked to Judd Heathcote. And I asked two people in our in my profession, you know, am I looking at this right? And both Bill Moose and Judd Heathcote said, yeah. And when I looked at going there, you know, it's hard to survive as long as I have in this business. You, you know, eventually, you know, your energy or something, I mean, you're going to get some speed bumps. You're going to get a slice of humble pie. You do this long enough, you're going to get let go. You know, I'm going to be in the Hall of Fame where I got let go. <laughs> so, <laughs> the way it is, you know. So, you know, and I'm friends with the guys that fired me. So you kind of got to get over that part of it. And, you know, it's kind of humbling to kind of look at all that stuff and, and, and try to put it all in its place. And, you know, I, I thought at the time, to do this, I probably should step out of the limelight, get out of the crosshairs, go back and be an assistant for two or three years, take stock in myself. Now, a lot of guys said I was crazy because getting one of these Division One head jobs is near impossible. But Mike and Stanford wanted to reinvest in their success. They were good, and they wanted to reinvest in their success and bring somebody in like myself with Mike that had a comfort level that could maybe raise the program up higher. Yesterday at practice, Casey Jacobson, the all-time leading scorer in the history of California at the time that I was involved and recruited him to Stanford, was at our practice yesterday. Both Russ and I had a chance to coach him with Mike Montgomery as the head coach. So when I came in there, we recruited well. We, we were a number one seed. We won three Pac-10 titles. They hadn't won a championship in 48 years when I went there. They'd been good, but they hadn't won a championship for, for since Christ was a corporal. And so... It was so fun to be there with Mike. We laughed every day. We won a ton. And I promised to be there three years. I was there three years and one day. In recent years, last couple of years, Stu Morrill and his offensive philosophies have sort of received some national acclaim. There's the story of you know Mike Montgomery, Stu Morrill, maybe even yourself, drawn up some plays that then have then matriculated all the way into the NBA, and now the Golden State Warriors are running some of this stuff. Take us back to those times when when you guys are sort of on the forefront of, of modern day offensive basketball, and and what do you think of just the esteem that Coach Morrill has received nationwide here in, in recent years? Uh, you know, I talk about you know Mike's impact amongst the group maybe being understated. I think Stu never liked all the attention. Stu never sought out the attention. He never said, "Hey, look at me. Hey, this is what I did." Uh, you know, and in the midst of that, you look at what he did at Montana, Colorado State, Utah State is just incredible. But just Stu became the consummate tactician. It didn't come easy for him. He worked at it early in his years. And I remember when he first became a head coach, we were transitioning from chalk to grease boards then. 
<laughs> and the chalk would fly. And then the grease boards, we thought we could draw all day on this stuff and keep erasing it. It was a, little, a lot less messy. <laughs> and so we, we were all young coaches and, and with a flurry of ideas. And Robin Stovig was in the middle of that. And uh, we came up with stuff. But Stu was probably maybe more stubborn than everybody. When he had something that he liked, he would stay with it. But he would find a hundred different ways to make it work. He would figure out when you substituted or when the wind was blowing or just something in the game that would allow his stubborn strategy to work. And he'd always find an angle. And he made the same plays work for years. And, you know, you're referring to the action the Warriors are using. That was a, an action that, that actually Stu and I came up with after, after Mike left. And it was really a result of having had Larry Kristoviak and we had Wayne Tinkle and we had to figure out how to move big guys around and get them touches and still have. So it was kind of a creativity that was, you know, out of, out of need, out of, you know, sometimes the, the best imagination is common when, when, when there's a, a need. And, and so that was something we came up. He was in his early thirties. I was still in my twenties. Um, and we were still kind of, throwing out old ideas and trying to create some of our own. But Stu was the, the architect of that. And I really think that if you look at that list, everybody would talk about this guy and that guy. And everybody always says, ooh, Stu, boy, what a coach. But he doesn't get probably as many headlines, doesn't get as many interviews. That, you know, In fact, there's been a few times where I have turned people to him to interview him. And he's actually thanked me because, you know, when you retire, sometimes you feel a little forgotten and and he's actually said, you yeah, know, thanks for mentioning my name to that guy. It's like they didn't even know I, you know, was a part of that. So that's kind of what's happened with Stu a little bit at times, I believe. He may be the best human being on the list, honestly. Blaine, this is uh, an absurd question I know already, but especially given the amount of time, both your youth and then obviously your playing and coaching days in, in Missoula. But do you have a time or a story or something that stands out to you where maybe it sort of encapsulates your, your memories of your time in Missoula? Oh boy. Um, it, I, I, I don't know. It, it, being from there, um, you know, everywhere I've gone, they've nicknamed me Montana and I'll be in golf tournaments in Virginia and people be yelling three fairways away. Cause when I would speak, I would always, you know, use Montana quips like, you know, a cow looking at a new gate or, you know, the wind was blowing so hard. I saw a chicken lay the same egg three times, you know, things that you would say <laughs> in Montana, you know, and people would just kind of take to that Montana isms. And, and, and in Virginia, they called them Blaine isms, but they were really Montana isms. And, you know, I, I think that over the years, maybe not one moment, but if there's been a common thread with Blaine Taylor being from Montana and being identified with the University of Montana, it's the ability to laugh at me, laugh at life, the ups and downs, and, and really the, the art of enjoying life. For instance, at my press conference, I'm there, and it was a pretty big audience, being a homegrown kid and former player and family and all the things that were there. And so there's a big audience, and they asked me, they said, what's going to be the biggest adjustment to being the head coach at the University of Montana? And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, making more than a minimum payment on my credit card. <laughs> 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 I got a pretty good raise. 
<laughs> so I think that's what makes me smile because I see guys around. And uh, I was in a function last night at the chancellor's house. Beautiful. Look, you know, it's an unbelievable place. And on the one hand, I have one of our coaches run over and said, there's a guy down at the other end. I mentioned your name. And he says, man, I got to see him. I don't know. I've seen this guy 20 years ago somewhere through sports and being the Montana guy. And then I'm waiting for my valet car to leave. And I still drive a, they call it Black Beauty. I have this big, beautiful, you know, Sierra pickup. And uh, so, I, so they pull that up and they, the people are standing me next to, they're named Callahan. And I said, boy, I sure knew a lot of Callahan from Montana. And, and the guy says, you know, good Irish name. And she says, you're from Montana? I said, yeah. She says, I was born in Missoula. I said, no way. And so that's just how life is. I've been all over the world and ran into people that somehow gravitated to me because of Montana. And tomorrow is my grandson's birthday out in Virginia. He's turning four. His name, <laughs> Milo Montana. And Milo means my love. So my grandson's name is My Love Montana. It's awesome. Do you feel like just those Montana ethoses and values and things have helped carry you through your career after Montana? Oh, I've had my ups and downs. I mean, about five, six years ago, they used to joke I had one foot in the grave and another banana peel. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, was, <laughs> I was not doing good, man. I mean, you take a picture of me now and take a picture of me then, and you, you know, there, 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 there wasn't guys, six guys strong enough to carry me to be fall bears. I was way heavy and uh, not healthy. And it was a really difficult time. And, I, and, and people ask me how, how I came out of it. I said, you know, my parents lived through the Depression. They went through World War II. They went belly up. Times were tough over in the Butte area. You know, in Montana, you go through storms and grizzly bear attacks and earthquakes and whatever the heck else, you know, smoke inversion and whatever. And, you know, you're just a survivor. Forest fires. I mean, you, you know, you're just a survivor. And I think it's inbred in you in Montana, this resilient, this resiliency in your DNA to find a way to keep coming back. And, you know, my kids have a saying, they put both arms up and say, I a Taylor, you know, which really means, you know, I'm from Montana and uh, I can keep finding a way in life. Well, Blaine, this has been absolutely fantastic. We really appreciate your time. Uh, we're excited to see you as you continue in the coaching world there at Irvine and look forward to catching up again on down the road. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, man. You guys have been great. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Coulter. I, I really am blessed to be back coaching, and I don't take it for granted. You know, grateful people are happy people, and I, I'm very grateful and very happy every day. I just I get a run to the gym, and I get to you know go help young guys and be connected to something bigger than myself. And it's just uh, it's just a dream that I'm able to do that. I, there was a time in my life I took it for granted. I was kind of over it all, and uh, I'm really enjoying life, and I plan on doing it for some time to come. We got to ask you one more question before we get you out of here. We've asked every other guy that's been on this podcast. When you hear Montana State Bobcats, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, one of the best players in the history of Montana State is is a great uncle of mine from down in Idaho. So, you know, back when they went to the the NIT finals, the Montana State thought they could recruit me, but, man, were they dreaming. It's a two-camp world in Montana. You're either on one side of the fence or the other. I have told people everywhere I've gone, 
There is no rivalry like it. And I was out in Old Dominion, and VCU and Old Dominion were way better than Virginia and Virginia Tech, Cal and Stanford. But that rivalry is like no other. It's a two-camp world, and you're either on one side or the other. And, and, and I have been at a number of schools that wore blue. I wear blue now. I couldn't wear blue for the longest time, <laughs> gold for the longest time. I mean, it took me a long time to get to where I'd even wear those colors and not feel like somebody was going to sneak up behind me and hit me in the head with a sledgehammer. <laughs> so, it, 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 and I have, you know, and I'm kind of maybe past that a little bit in that I have many friends that went to MSU. I have many friends that, you know, support MSU. But, you know, I guess as you get a little older, you kind of temper that you're, you're not going to, you know, slash their tires and put sugar in their gas tank. But, it's a strong response. If you live there, I mean, I, I still know that as a head coach, I think I was 12 and four against them. And as a player, I think I was like 11 and three. I mean, I, <laughs> you, you, you remember how you did against Montana State, no matter how old you are. Blaine, that's fantastic, man. We appreciate <laughs> it. That's, that's, that is a good cherry on the top of this Sunday. <laughs> All right, guys. Hey, thanks so much, man. This is, this has been way more fun for me than you, and I know I rattled on, but boy, I had a Well, that was fun. Our thanks to Blaine Taylor once again for joining us. It's tough to uh, not burn some calories gut laughing when Blaine Taylor's on the phone with you, that is for sure, and some great stories, and what a path and a path that continues. The guy who is still in it, still doing it at Cal Irvine. This is why you put together a podcast series like this, Colter, so you can talk to a guy like that. One of the best parts about this series has been the history of the Missoula and the fact that several of these guys not only played at the University of Montana, like Blaine Taylor, and then coached at the University of Montana, like Blaine Taylor, but also were from Missoula, Montana. And I think that gives it a distinctly even more unique feel. Blaine is a proud Missoulian, and he's a favorite son of this place. So his sense of place and his connection to the Garden City, tremendous and I know that this is a place that's very dear to his heart, and I know he's very fondly remembered around these parts as well. So we really appreciate Blaine for taking some time and helping us out with this entire project. Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree podcast is brought to us in part by our friends over at Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate. Best part about living in Missoula, you'd probably be able to find some friendly neighbors like Blaine Taylor. If you need help finding a residential place or you're looking to move, upgrade, move to a different school district, Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate is your go-to real estate experts in the city of Missoula. Mike Nugent specifically, a guy with a wealth of knowledge who grew up in this town himself, a Missoula native. Mike Nugent, Mike Bryan, and Gary Bryan all understand the importance of history when it comes to the University of Montana, particularly when it comes to the men's basketball program. And so Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate is proud to present to you Grizz Greats, the coaching tree. At Berkshire Hathaway, they understand that buying and selling are huge decisions, and they always have your best interests in mind. So give them a call, Berkshire Hathaway, your local real estate experts. Make sure to check out the Blaine Taylor bonus episode to go along with episode four bonus episodes coming out with each of these uh, episodes and the podcast and episode five, another great one as well. An unbelievable conversation. I thought with Don Holst and Coulter, Don Holst, a very unique figure within this coaching tree, a Missoulian, a Montana guy, and the only coach not retained who was, was replaced with a different head coach by an athletic director. That is still certainly a point of sensitivity, a point of frustration for Don Holst. And yet, his allegiance to the University of Montana, a guy who still lives in Missoula and has all these years, 
an unbelievable story. And, I mean, really, you took a team to the tournament after going through a rebuild of Dahlberg Arena and playing uh, you know, a season in the Sentinel High School gym with his college team. It wasn't an easy four years that he was the head coach, and yet out of that comes a, a pretty tremendous story, and he was great to sit down and talk with us. Atypical path from the very beginning as a guy that was just a high school coach bringing some of his teams down to camps. Basically got recruited because he stood out so much in that avenue and then cultivated his coaching career, becomes the head coach. And there's been many runs through the Big Sky Tournament to get to the NCAA Tournament featuring a great many of the subjects of these Grizz Great podcasts. But perhaps the most unlikely and in turn perhaps one of the most exciting runs through the Big Sky Tournament was the run that Don Holtz led his team on from the buzzer-beating putback dunk by Dan Trammell to just the unlikely uh, path all the way to the big dance. That team will be uniquely remembered in the arc of the history of this program, and Don Holtz was the guy leading the way. So uh, a lot of different interesting portions of this podcast because, like you said, Dahlberg Arena renovated under Don Holtz's watch, changed the face of the University of Montana forever. But there was also some other things that were changing in the landscape of college basketball that had an influence on the struggles and challenges that Don Holson and his team faced. So uh, parallel with Sign of the Times in the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, give a listen to Episode 5 with Don Holst, and I uh, hope you've enjoyed Episode 4 with Blaine Taylor. Thanks so much for being with us on Grizz Greats, the coaching free podcast.